0: Almighty God, you so love the world that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love by your Holy Spirit, that we may delight in the inheritance that is ours as your sons and daughters, and live to your praise and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so there was an idea that was pitched, which was like, can we have like a little liturgical orientation? I know we did this Christchurch 101, but I didn't get to do it, and Father Jonathan did it, so I want to correct anything he did wrong. I'm kidding. Um, also, just to give my perspective, which is a little different, and, and I know that for a number of people, it's like, hey, you know, I don't I don't know what to do. And it's like, you know, I want to just say, don't worry about that. And then people are, but I don't know what to do. And it's like, that's fine. Um, so I, I really just kind of want to give, like, a, an orientation today. That's just basically the, the idea of this. We'll put down catechisms for the morning and just sort of look around. Um, I think that one of the best ways to think liturgically is to think first architecturally. Um, because church architecture actually tells us something. It kind of, it actually... Um, delivers the gospel to us in a very interesting way um, that that's very intentional. Um, so you know, I was mentioning to you, uh, I've probably mentioned this before, but early churches were not churches. What were they? They were houses. They were just houses. And oh, when when the Romans kind of open up and, and, and especially in Rome, the whole city basically becomes Christian. They take ancient basilicas and they turn them into churches. So you get churches built on top of the ruins of houses, and then you get basilicas that are, uh, that are built for other purposes, right? So like, um, you know, If if you ever get to go to a city like Rome, you can see these ancient basilicas that were converted into churches. Um, You can also see that there are uh, numerous examples of churches built on top of houses, um, catacombs. of course, now this church wasn't built on catacombs. It was built on open prairie, probably, <laughs> and uh, or actually just probably forest land next to the Brazos River. Uh, so, what what gives? Like, why maintain some of those features? And the answer that I would give is that is that uh, the churches churches were built to show forth the gospel, and people thought, well, how are we going to do that without that kind of architecture? Um, this church was built um, as a very classically made um, Lutheran church with a very interesting feature, which is this sloping, uh, the sloping set of pews. And, and that actually comes to the architect himself. Um, the architect who designed this building um, also designed uh, First Baptist, and they also have a sloping uh, uh, sanctuary. So why do I say all this? Well, I say all this because um, we often, in order to know where we're going or what we're doing, we have to know where we are. And liturgical space is where we are. Um, Many of you grew up in religious traditions that were much more focused on the church as a meeting house, or even worse, as an auditorium. Um, Now, what does the word auditorium say about what happens there? This is all about hearing, right? So you're here to hear something um, or listen to something. Um, give attention to. Um, but but a, but a church as liturgical space, that's not actually the primary function. And that's surprising to people because, uh, because of how our churches are laid out. One of the things that happens in the Reformation is uh, churches add something that's really interesting in the history of the church that wasn't there before. This thing, a pew. Uh, prior to the Reformation, uh, and really prior to this really... 17th century in a lot of places, churches didn't have pews. Um, A church was a place where you stood to hear someone preach and you milled around the rest of the time. Um, So, you know, if you can imagine this church without without pews, what would be happening is people just sort of milling around. Um, And that was okay because, uh, especially prior to the Reformation, like, did you know what the priest was saying? unless you had some fabulous education and you could and you could hear latin and understand it which actually you know your latin teacher if you ever had one can't do that. So there's this there's this understanding of you you're you're here to do something else. So churches filled up with devotional objects, really. Um, between stained glass windows, statues, stations of the cross, things like that that were put in place to aid in the devotion of the people. Um, much of what we do today in churches and, and you'll note like there have been things that, uh, that were very vastly different between Roman Catholic and Protestant practices in the Reformation that have sort of like come back together, right? Um, so you know you like this church, you'll have communion and you'll have readings and you have people kneeling and standing up and singing hymns and all those things. Um, and actually hymns are, are one of the most hilarious parts of this because you know it was Protestants. Who started singing hymns, and then Catholics sort of said, "Well, we should have hymns too, because that's something that they, that that people like." Okay, well, that's that's basically the story. Um, but what do you have in a church as basic layout? Well, you have three parts to the church, uh, as it's as a medieval church would be, and by medieval I mean anything from about the sixth century on. Uh, you have three parts. You have the nave, which is where we are right now in terms of the church. And why do they call it the nave? You know, look up. What's it look like? It's the hull of a ship. Yeah. Because Christians, they thought, hey, the church is the ship of Christ on which we are traveling to heaven. Um, And it wasn't just like eventually. It was now. It was this idea of you have this upside-down ship that is... Um, transporting you to heaven. So the, when you enter into it, it that's what it's doing. Um, and in many cases actually we know that uh, Christians were doing things like taking the hull of a ship and placing it on top of a bunch of bricks and that was their church. Um, so so this is all intentional, right? All of this all of this millwork is made very intentionally to tell you, and especially to tell a bunch of Norwegians right in 1917, like where are you? You're in the ship of Christ. You're in his bark, which is another way to put it. B-A-R-Q-U-E. That's where you are. Um, So that's the first thing, right? What's the other thing that it's meant to do? Why high ceilings in a church? Does anyone know, like, architectural design principles? What do high ceilings do? They draw your eyes up, right? They lift your eyes up. Um, And so that's what, that's, what in part this building is meant to do. In the early days of this church, the back wall was like here. And in 1958, they extended it out with all this brickwork and they built the whole thing. They built the, they built the kitchen. They built the, all the stuff behind us. Um, but the altar was this way um, and it was probably made in town by, I'm guessing Trotschold probably made it. But But why? Why would they do that? Why would they have? Why would they have a big, huge altar? Because not all American Protestants had altars. These were Norwegian Lutherans, and Norwegian Lutherans are high church Lutherans. They they believe in the power of communion. They are very, very, very high church. So they they built a traditional high church altar that's like I haven't even measured it. It's something like fourteen feet high. It's big. Um, and, and why would they do that? To, to draw you and draw your eyes to the Eucharist, right? You'll note that what's in this church, the, the pulpit is not central. Um, the lectern's not central. But you'll note what's bigger than the other. The pulpit's bigger than the lectern, right? Why is that? Well, it's because um, Luther was big on preaching, we'll say that. Right, and um, and believed that preaching was essential to the church's life. Um, he actually believed that people came to faith through preaching, um, through the proclamation of the word of God. Well, that, I think that too. Um, so you got big pulpit, you got tinier lectern. The idea is that the preacher proclaims the faith to you. Um, but note what happens: they're on either side of this movement towards Christ in the Eucharist. So there's something very theologically clear about this, which is that the word of God is not a terminal end, but a, but, a, uh, but to bring you through to God. Um, okay, so you got all that, right? But so here we are in the nave. The next part is usually called the choir or the chancel or something like that. Um, and in the medieval church, this was where the monks or those in the choir were when they sang. And it's set up with opposing seating, so that they can sing psalms at each other, right, back and forth, Responsing, you know, response and verses, right, all of that. So that's really fun, right? When we when we say the psalms responsively, we're going into a, a very old tradition that actually predates the New Testament of singing psalms responsively like that. Okay. Then beyond the rail, that communion rail, is what we call the sanctuary. So people will often say, oh, well, your sanctuary is so beautiful. It's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But that's called the sanctuary. Well, why? Why is it called the sanctuary? Because it's where the altar is. right? And historically, you have an altar in a sanctuary because that's the holiest place in the church. It's where the Eucharist is celebrated over and over and over again. Um, It's also where, in our church, we keep the sacrament reserved for the sick. So you see that red lamp up there? That is lit when the sacrament is present in that altar, in that, in that tabernacle. Um, and there's only one day of the year where it's not there. Good Friday and into Holy Saturday. So lights put out, everything's stripped away. Um, that's, that's why we do that, um, is because basically this whole church on Good Friday just turns into a building. It's, it's essentially deconsecrated. Um, so so that's another thought there. Okay, turn your eyes to the back for a little bit, if you will. What's in the back? It's baptismal font, right? The baptismal font is in the back for a reason. Um, some of you grew up in churches where the baptismal font was in, like, kind of a tiled-in tub somewhere behind the wall, behind everything else, you know. And it was just sort of like occasionally people went in there and the lights got turned on for it. But... but ours is there. And the reason it's there is that we want to show forth that the way you enter into the church or the door of the church is baptism. Okay. Why? Because Christ is the church and to enter into him, you have to be baptized. Okay. So that's very simple. Um, but, but note some of the things on there. Um, and some of this is really intentional. This, this was a real, a real triumph, I think. Uh, it is not octagonal like a normal baptismal font would be. It's actually got crosses at the four corners, which means that it's, it's both cruciform and octagonal at the same time while also being circular. So I really love how it turned out. It's just amazing. Uh, cause you've got, uh, why the octagon in, in church design? Do you know about, this? have you, seen, have you noticed this? Octagons in churches? There's like a reason for this. So octagons, um, all, steeples are octagonal, they should be, anyway, unless they're Baptist, because then they have four-sided steeples, and the reason, there's actually a reason for that, it's for the four Gospels, instead of the eight Beatitudes. But normally it's the eight Beatitudes, right? So it's, the, it's this idea of the eight Beatitudes of, of the cross kind of coming down on the congregation from this steeple with a cross on it. Amazing stuff. Um, Richard John Newhouse used to say that his, his dad, who was a Lutheran pastor in Canada, would say you could tell a church was good or bad based on what they had on their steeple. The, the, the Orthodox churches had crosses. The more progressive churches had weather vanes, which, you know, I'll tell you something, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the, the baptismal font is an image of the gifts of beatitude being given to the church. Um, and so you'll note there are angels and crosses around it. And there are eight, there are four crosses, four angels. Um, I just love that. I think it's just an amazing thing. Um, under, and it sits under a window. See, so I actually suspect that in the old days, the Lutherans had their baptismal font right there. Whatever it was, that's where they had it. Because it's put directly under the, the image of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Um, that's a great baptismal image. Um, so that's a beautiful thing. One of the things that we also did in this church, which I'll just give you a little bit of, of background on it. When we bought the church in the altar uh, piece, which is actually called the Reredos, this back, um, R-E-R-E-D-O-S. There was a red curtain with a brass cross in front of it, which I'm pretty certain was a, was a war memorial for uh, the loss of the, of the congregation um, during World War II. It's very common to do that. Um, and in fact, when, when the Lutherans left, they wanted to take all that with them, and we said, yeah, go ahead. Uh, but we actually still have the red curtain. Um, they had had before a lithograph of the resurrection, which was there, um, which is beautiful. I mean, I've seen pictures of it. It's amazing. Uh, they also wanted to keep that too. So, <laughs> but they had moved it down into the parish hall. So we had this new, uh, this new image commissioned, um, and it's of, of Jesus. In his risen body um, and, and I love the image because it's it's actually I got to compose it with the artist so it's there's a lot going on there and you can sort of look at it forever but but you know you got two mountains on either side right you've got you've got um, you've got um, the kind of two mountains that Paul talks about in Galatians um, you've got uh, Jesus bearing the cross as his victorious weapon like thing right He's in front of a giant sun, which is an Easter egg. Let's just be, I mean, it's one of the most obvious parts of the imagery that people are like, eh, I'm not sure about that. Like, yes, it's an Easter egg, okay? Why is it an Easter egg? Is it because eggs are good? Yes, we love eggs. Uh, no, it's its because um, actually what happens in the resurrection is, and this is where you see in, in art, in, in Christian art, things get stretched so, like, the sun, which we all know is a sphere, gets stretched because it's so altering to creation, the resurrection is. Um, and so, what you have often in Christian imagers, you have this, this thing called a mandorla, which is um, a gate between heaven and earth, uh, artistically. So, that's fun. Um, then you have the purple tomb, which is a reference to what? Lent. Right, it's it's the Lenten tomb. It's 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 sin. It's death. It's all those things. Um, anyway, lots going on there, but Jesus is pointing his his hand down, not only to show you the tomb, but to show you what. You got to watch. You got to watch this during the Eucharist. You can't just you have to you have to look up. So when those bells ring, it's a reminder, like look up, because what's he doing? In the image, Jesus is pointing to himself in the Eucharist. Um, which is how the church continually experiences the resurrection, um, and Jesus himself, um, um, real fellowship with Jesus in the Eucharist. So all that is to say, everything's meant to, 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 teach, right? So everything in a, in a, in a space in a church is meant to teach. We also have these wonderful, uh, stations of the cross, which we got last, this year, um, and these are actually, uh, made out of molds that this, Wild man in St. Louis does. He buys antique Stations of the Cross and then he builds, he makes molds of them. And then he presses plaster into the molds and and when the plaster dries, he pulls it out and then he hand paints them. Like unbelievable. Well, what's, you know where the Stations of the Cross come from? This is an amazing thing. So, do you know that St. Francis went to Jerusalem during the Crusades? He went on a mission to preach to Saladin during the Crusades, like went to Jerusalem and he walked the traditional way of the cross. It's like an amazing story. Um, actually, there are lots of amazing stories having to do with Francis and the Crusades, but uh, especially his meeting with Saladin, which is an unbelievable story. Um, anytime you think of Francis as just some sort of wimpy saint, you you do not know the real history. The historical Francis is just like an amazing guy. Um, so he's like so overwhelmed with gratitude to God for his pilgrimage and this ability to do this, that he started in Franciscan churches putting something like the Stations of the Cross in Jerusalem around the churches with these images of saying, like, you you might not get to go to Jerusalem because uh, well <laughs> we lost it. <laughs> and you probably won't get to go see the Relic of the Cross because mm, we lost that too, right? Um, but how can we still have that kind of piety? Well, we do it here, right? Because actually every church is our participation in not just Jerusalem, but Mount Zion and all those things. Um, it's, it's a representation of the temple. So this is another feature, right? Um, you may also know that it's St. Francis who brought the, uh, the idea of a nativity set into the church. Because he was just obsessed with the nativity, he loved the whole f- he loved the whole thing, right? Um, so, so much of our Christmas-oriented imagery is comes from St. Francis. Okay, if I go on too long, just let me know. I like to ramble, but that's the basic layout. You got nave, chancel, or choir, and sanctuary. And here's the best part: the best part is that all of this represents our ascent to God. That's that's what it's meant to be. It's you you go. F- you, you, you spend time in the sort of ship, right? And you um, you enter into the heavenly choir through the cross, which, by the way, in medieval churches, they would put a, a beam or like a screen, so a wooden screen or a carved screen that would have a cross on top of it. And you know the reason? It's all theological. It's like you go through the cross into the choir of the heavenly angels. And it's there that you kneel at the threshold between the choir and the sanctuary to receive the body and blood of Jesus. So this is all meant to show forth this ascent, okay? Um, Which was a really hard sell in the early days because we had had met in this like, you know, Baptist auditorium that used to be a Lutheran church all, all up to that phase. Look what happens. Like, I don't know about you, but I love lining up for communion and making that walk. I think it's one of the most, it's my favorite part. It's like walking up there with children and friends and babies and like all those kinds of things. And it's just, it's inspiring. And then to kneel down, you're like, um, and it's an image of the church together, right? It's to say, um, the reason we don't pass out communion to the pews is because of this, because of this layout, um, it's Jesus inviting you to come to Him. Uh, now we all know that Jesus comes to us, right? We know that, um, but but there's such an emphasis here. Of, of you got to balance that out with you're gonna go, you're gonna come up. Okay, so let's walk through the Eucharistic liturgy, shall we? Want to do that? Would that be helpful? So grab a prayer book and we'll walk through it. In the second half of this of this time. The other priest and I are conspiring to have a, 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 an instructed Eucharist on, on a Sunday here uh, fairly soon. Uh, it'll probably be in January before everybody comes back for, for school, but that'll be that'll be another thing altogether. Okay, so we're going to start on page uh, one hundred five. Okay, all right. Just a few a few things here. Um, if you really want to know what the Eucharistic liturgy is all about. It's basically about a Jewish synagogue meeting that's been smashed together with a meal, okay? So that's all you really have to know, right? So in in the Acts of the Apostles, you hear they eat a lot of meals, right? You can read that. You know that's happening. And sometimes they eat and drink a lot. And Paul makes reference to the fact that people are getting drunk during their meals, which is scandalous, and he also makes reference to like how they should read scripture together during their meetings. Okay, so we know that that was happening. Um, in fact, this is kind of amazing. Um, the best sources we have about what Jewish liturgies looked like in the first century are all Christian. That'll surprise you. Like that's how we know what they're like um, because that's that's what we have. Um, so that's the first part. Is is we've got we've got from the get go word and sacrament. Um, there's obviously preaching. There's obviously reading, and because that's what a synagogue service is, right? And we know what a synagogue service looks like because we see it in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus goes into the into the uh, synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue in in um, in uh, Capernaum, and what does he do? He reads a text, and then he talks about it, right? that's what you did in the synagogue. <laughs> that's what a rabbi would do. They would say, hand me the scroll. And <laughs> you read the scroll. Okay. And then you then you give some sort of talk about it. Okay. Well, Christians not only did that, they also had this meal aspect. And, and the reason I say meal instead of Eucharist is that nothing had been ritualized yet. So the idea would be, you would eat all manner of food during these gatherings. You would have, and I'm certain it would be a Middle Eastern feast, like you just can't even imagine. Um, but, but that was how it went. And then something happens. Paul in, in uh, 1 Corinthians is, is just, you know, he's on a tear. And he he's, he's laying into him like, you can't be doing this sort of stuff. Like, some of you are getting drunk. That's not good. Some of you are eating to your fill and then some. And others are going away hungry. That's not good. Do you not have homes to eat in? So he he derides them for that they, and and you can see how pretty early on uh, the Eucharistic meal itself becomes ritualized right Of course it becomes ritualized because otherwise it's it's putting on a potluck where you got to break for certain ritualized elements and it's just chaos right and it's a mess um, and some people go away hungry just like a church potluck right because somebody didn't get enough chicken okay well fine. Right, and that's what it was. It was literally like, you know, first century churches. You've got basically a potluck, um, and at some point, it's like the bishop, whoever that might be, is is like, okay, well, now I'm gonna kind of let's let's tell you the story of salvation. And in the midst of that, he one of the centerpieces of that discussion is the Eucharistic liturgy itself. Um, So everything becomes ritualized. That's really just the key. Um, And a big part of the reason it becomes ritualized is in the ancient church, only bishops could celebrate the Eucharist. It was reserved for them. Well, you can't have parish churches with the Eucharist if the parish priest can't celebrate the Eucharist. So bishops extended that privilege out. With that extending of the privilege, they went from having kind of impromptu, extemporaneous Uh, kind of preaching of the gospel meets the Eucharist to written liturgies for the clergy to follow. Because we priests are terribly unpredictable. And the the only way to make us predictable is tell us what we're going to do. Okay, And we just go carry it out. So you have written liturgies. And in fact, what happens is, Bishops are also not all geniuses, so so sometimes they would say, hey, you know, Bishop so-and-so's got a great liturgy. We're just going to use that. Like, John Chrysostom wrote an unbelievable liturgy. Like, we're going to use that, okay? So that's how that goes. The Roman liturgies, fantastic. We'll use that. Um, uh, and as that went, you get certain rites all over the place. Um, what we have in the English prayer book is we have several things. We have uh, the Roman liturgy, as it came into England, especially in what's called the Sarum Use, which is um, out of Salisbury Cathedral, which was kind of an amazing cathedral, and that was where the everybody in England pretty much understood up, straight up to the Reformation, like, the best liturgy in England is the Sarum Use. Like, that, they, they do everything better than everyone else. Like, so that was where we got it. And when Cranmer sits down to pen the first English liturgies, what does he do? Because he's English. He's like... <laughs> Obviously, we're gonna take and borrow heavily from the serum use. Um, so that's what we have in the prayer book. We have this translation of the serum use, but of course, Kramer's a reformer, so is he good with just saying like, hey, let's have the let's have the serum liturgy? Yeah. There's gonna be some modification, right? Because he's a reformer. So that's what you got, okay? What we have in modern prayer books is much different from what you had had in 1549 when the first prayer book came, 1552, 1662, it's very different. But some of the stuff still remains. All right, so you're ready to jump in. 105, All Right. The opening acclamation is actually a new addition as of the 70s. There was this idea of like, things seem to be off to a bit of a rocky start. Like, uh, how can we provide some sort of way to just get started? And the, the solution was, boom. Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Prior to this, Anglicans have not done this. This is a new edition, um, and, and I really like it because it's a lot better than good morning, right? Um, and and uh, I always hate it when I go visit a church, and I'll just I'll tell you how, what a snob I am. Um, and and the very first words of the priest's mouth are, Good morning! Please turn to page 105. And then he waits for everyone to be ready, and then it's like, Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, no. Like, I think the first thing in the formal part of the liturgy needs to be addressed to God uh, directly. That that tells everybody where the priority is, right? It's not on you all having a good time. It's not on you having a good experience. That's not what we're going to do. Remember that laeturgia, that word in Greek, um, is is the work of the people. Ergos being work, uh, laos being people. Okay, so... Um, Leuturgia is means work of the people. Now, this is where we have fun linguistic debates, right? Because it's not that simple. Um, it doesn't just mean work that work that the people do. What does it mean? Also, almost simultaneously, I use the word public works. It's it's like when you see a, a city of Waco truck out on your street, and it says what what, what on the side of it public works. Why does it say public works? Because it's for the good of the people. Yeah. So like Christians understood and they used the word that Roman emperors used for public works for what they did in the liturgy because they understood that they were doing this work of the liturgy on behalf of the people that surrounded them, on behalf of the neighborhood, on behalf of the city. So um, I think this is huge. I mean, I think that Christians need to think a lot about this. It's like, the main act that we undertake on a Sunday morning, and any other time we undertake it, is for the good of all in our in our of uh, the people that we serve. Um, and you might say, "But yeah, but what does it really do for them?" We have no idea what it does for them, right? No idea. God knows, right? But I'm convinced that. The celebration of the Eucharist in certain places has meant the avoidance of natural disaster. I'm certain that it's meant all manner of things. Um, I'm sure that it's meant avoiding famines and things like that. Well, why? Because we're praying because we believe prayer is effective. Um, One of the great debates in the 5th century is, you know, why do we pray for those who don't believe? The answer is given. It's like, because only God can do anything about them. They can't do anything about it, so we pray that God will do something about it, right? Um, and it's a really basic uh, argument for why uh, the first step towards salvation isn't ours. Right? It's God's. Okay. So all of this has to go Godward, right? Um, it's also why liturgical orientation is really important, and, and I use that word orientation intentionally, because no matter which direction a church faces, that way is east, Okay, so Waco, we have this wonderful thing that no one knows what, what way east is ever. Like East is across the river, which is also north and like this happens to be south, kind of like <laughs> it's just a disaster. Uh, but when we're in the building, right? that's east. And the reason that's east is really simple. It's that Christian churches were built oriented, oriented, right? directly, to the east. Why? because the sun rises in the east. And this is no coincidence. The sun, God the sun rises in the east. Okay? It's even better than that. The Mount of Olives, where Jesus ascends to the Father, is where in your your Jerusalem geography. If you have a Bible with a map in it, this is really helpful, okay? You should you should read you should read the Gospels with a map, by the way. It's incredibly helpful, and that's why they put in there the the map of Jerusalem and the map of of, uh, of all these things. It's amazing. Um, the Mount of Olives is the is on the east side of Jerusalem. It obscures the view of the Jordan Valley from Jerusalem. Actually, the Mount of Olives is higher than the Temple Mount. Why? Well, why do the why do we think about this? Well. Jews understand that the, that the Messiah will come from the east and the first view of him will be in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives facing east. Okay, Which is why, when you go there, the whole side of the Mount of Olives is covered in graveyards. Because people are like, at the resurrection of the dead, I want to see Jesus. I, can all be, I want to be one of the first ones there. Okay, That's why they're there. Um, so churches face east towards the rising sun towards Christ who is the Orient right um, and that word is used in, in a lot of different ways but but the East Orientum is is Latin for East okay so good there that's why this is liturgically East every time okay let's jump in all right so we're, we're all facing east right we have opening acclamation and we're all facing the same direction um, and uh, the The celebrant prays this college for purity, which actually comes from the Saramuse. There's a very similar prayer there. Um, It's a prayer that that you know well because you've heard it before. Almighty God to you, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Can we perfectly love God? Not on our own power, but what's prayed for? The cleansing of our thoughts, which I don't know about you, but when I when I am I, when I'm at worship, I am my thoughts are all over the place. It's like, man, I could use an app. God, the Aggies were terrible last night. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, but our, our thoughts have to be cleansed. Sometimes our thoughts are worse than that, really bad. Um, so God got us to cleanse our thoughts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, that we may perfectly love him and wordly magnify your holy name. Um, we acknowledge that we come with secrets into church. We come with things people don't know about us. Um, then the celebrant turns around. So these turnings are really important. When I'm talking to God, I am not facing you. I'm facing God in the East, right? And it's not to turn my back on you. It's to say, I'm with you. We're together praying so we're facing God. Okay, now. now of course, where is God? Everywhere. Right? Where is He not? Okay. <laughs> um, nowhere. Uh, but but in this, our our bodies matter. Right? There's a reason that your eyes and your nose and you know you face forward. Right? It doesn't make sense for me to talk to you with my back to you. I'm not. I'm not if I'm talking to you, I'm going to face you, because we have as human beings, we're aligned this way. Um, so there's that. Um, but I turn to you and I give you the summary of the law. Now, why the summary of the law? Well, it's because Kramer put it in there. Why? Because he wanted to remind people of why we are here at all, very early and very often. The summary of the law is one part of that, but the other option is just read you the Ten Commandments. So that could be fun, right? Like every Sunday, the Ten Commandments. Why? Because Cranmer cut his teeth on Lutheran theology, actually, in the Reformation. And Luther believed very strongly that one could not actually come to faith without coming face-to-face with their own sin. So Lutheran catechisms all begin with the Ten Commandments. It's like we're going to tell you how awful you are before we tell you how good God is. And you can't know how good God is unless you know how awful you are, right? So, that's what the summary of the law features. It's it's a summary of the 10 commandments meant to basically be like <laughs> this is it's not to be like you should love your neighbor better before we get started. Like tisk tisk love your neighbor better. No. You should love God more. Yeah. No, it's not that at all. The purpose of the summary of the law is to say Yes, we've all failed. <laughs> this is, we are all failure, okay? Fail, 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 all over the place. Before, what do we do? Turn back again, and we say, Lord, have mercy upon us. I want to just say that Christian worship is a dangerous, dangerous thing. The only thing keeping you from being smote is the grace of God. And for you to presume to worship... Without going through these kinds of preliminary exercises of like, hey, I should really get a sense like I'm a sinner, and I have to have the mercy of God in order to enter into worship at all. I have to have uh, his his grace and the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. All that's got to be there. So see where we're going? This is really key um, because it just is like a presumption check, right? It's like I'm put put you through your paces very early on. Okay, then what? Well, then we have the Gloria, but Cramer didn't put the Gloria there. We did uh, in in 1979. It got moved because the original place of the Gloria uh, in uh, in the Anglican liturgies was at the very end, when the sacrament's still on the altar. We sing this hymn of praise to God. The Gloria, actually historically, it's a it's a fourth-century hymn. Um, and in Latin, originally, it was in this spot where it is now. So this was an act of liturgical restoration. All you need to know about the Gloria is the Gloria is like the fourth century version of Lord, I Lift Your Name on a High, okay? It's the most popular praise and worship song. It's just, like, fantastic. Everybody loved it. And, and it was almost like we can't really have church unless we sing that song. Okay, so that's what the Gloria is. And it's been around forever. Um very, very key, um, and, the, and the Gloria actually is only sung during festive seasons. So we don't sing it in Advent, we don't sing it in Lent. Um, it's it's only on those on the on Sundays and major feasts. All right, good there. Then we have the Collect of the day. Now the idea behind Collects is you have to have a prayer for the day that matches with the readings. Okay, so the original idea in the medieval lectionaries was have a Collect for the day that focuses everyone on what the content of the readings will be brilliant idea, right? And you have a year-long lectionary with only readings for uh, for 52 Sundays, okay, and all the feast days. Why? Well, because you don't want it to be too complex. Well, now it's complex. We have a three-year cycle with different colics that almost never match the readings, except rarely. Sometimes they do. That's not okay. That's, that's kind of terrible, actually. Uh, but that means the collects are disconnected from the readings and it's not always, it doesn't work all the time. Okay, so I'm just gonna give that away to you. But in the in the medieval period, straight up through the Reformation and, and on to like 60 years ago, 40 years ago really, um, you could pretty much depend that the collect was gonna relate to the readings and prepare you for what you were about to hear. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you slept or snoozed through the sermon, you could just read the collect and get a gist of what it was all about. Um, and in fact, if you're a really bad preacher and didn't know what to preach on because the readings be just preach on the collect. Because the collect gets it every time, if that's the case. Okay. Now we've got a bunch of collects. They're collected blah, blah, blah. It's, it's kind of a train wreck. Anyway. Um, but the collects are beautiful, right? So fine. You know, it all works. Um, then, what do we do? We have readings. And the readings are always an Old Testament reading or something from the Apocrypha, which is scandalous to some people, I know. But... reading from the Apocrypha. Why? Because the Apocrypha is read in church. We acknowledge that. It always has been. Uh, Is it scripture? No, but we read it in church. Okay? Um, So that's that's how we've chosen to do it. Um, Then you have the psalm. Then you have a New Testament reading. And then you have the gospel. Now, the gospel procession is new to some people, and it's an amazing thing. Why a gospel procession? Why not just read from the lectern? Well, you could read from the lectern, just like you do anything. Uh, but part of the part of the logic in in liturgy is is this: the thing you do liturgically should closely match the thing that you are teaching theologically and catechetically. So why a gospel procession? Well, it it just it it reminds you that Christ comes to us and not the other way around. We don't hear him from afar; he comes to us. This was even more dramatic in the medieval church because actually they had a gospel procession that came here and the gospel would be read this way. Okay, so if you're facing east, what's that way? The, the barbarian hordes who want to kill you, who aren't Christians. So what do you do? You proclaim the gospel facing them, right? To them. The reading of the gospel is not for the benefit of Christians. It's for the Mongol. It's for the. It's for the. It's for the invaders, right? Um, so that's fun, uh, and and really wonderful. It's a reminder that like that's what we're up against. Um, and what's 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 the tool here? It's the gospel. There's amazing stuff going on here. Um, now we just sort of read it so that everyone can hear it before the sermon. That's that's okay. That's fine. Um, but but. We also don't have we don't have that kind of geographic sense anymore of, of all that. Okay. So, having heard the sermon, um, the response to the sermon is the Nicene Creed. This has not always been the case. Um, prior to the recent prayer books, it, the creed was recited after the um, after the gospel reading, and then the 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 the, the sermon would be preached. Okay. So all that is to say, okay, there you are. The The creed is actually not an ancient part of the liturgy. People didn't recite creeds and liturgies. The only liturgy you would recite a creed in would be a baptismal liturgy. Um, and uh, it was really kind of in the kind of crusades area, the era that people said, you know, we should start reciting the creed because we're really up against it. We've got heresy all over the place. We've got, you know, all manner of things. We just need to recite creeds. That's really key. Um, and it was just kind of a mark of, of an orthodox and Catholic church um, in the midst of lots of things going on. Okay, prayers of the people, you ready? Now, the prayers of the people are uh, in a strange place right now because they got moved, but um, it, the idea is this, that there's a transition that occurs between the, the sermon and the prayers of the people. And the, tr- the traditional transition is between the liturgy of the catechumens, which is what the first part of the liturgy is, um, because in the ancient world, the first part of the liturgy was something that anyone could attend, like anyone could come. That was where you went to hear preaching, which in the ancient world was like, rhetoric was a big deal. It was fun. You went as like entertainment. Um, crowds were raucous. Like, take the most call and response Baptist church you've ever seen in your life. It's nothing like Augustine's church. I mean, in Augustine's church, people are wailing and making this theatrical display of wailing and beating their breasts when he's talking about what sinners they are, and he's he's responding to them like, "You're beating your breasts because you think about your sin, but you really should beat your breasts because of how alienated it's made you from God. Like your sin concerns you, and it really should concern you because you're like you're just you're just a ban- you're like you're you're orphans." Um, Crying out for a father who d- who probably doesn't hear you. Actually, <laughs> that's that's Augustine's like that hard about it. Um, there are all these wonderful things that happen in that, and it, and it's it's just it's crazy. People are screaming, people are fainting. I mean, it's like a Beatles concert. Um, people are it's 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 nuts in churches at that point. I don't think we can even we can't even describe it. Um, this was all made clear to me listening to an Augustine scholar speak about this because you know. Augustine, St. Augustine, it's hard to even say. It was like he was a rapper and a, a, an actor and a teacher and a poet and a performer all wrapped into one. Like people showed up because he was so good with the spoken language um, and that happened throughout churches, right? And, and Augustine's a great example because he was the city orator of Milan at the time of his conversion, and he couldn't draw a crowd like Ambrose could, so he started showing up to hear Ambrose speak. What, at what? The liturgy of the catechumens in the basilica in Milan. Okay, This is really important. People were showing up for this sort of stuff. Right after the sermon, what they would do is they'd say, basically, everyone who's a catechumen, it's time for you to go, like, out. And in the, in the Eastern Church, it was things like, the doors, deacons, man the doors. Like, throw everybody out who's not a Christian. They can't stay for this part. All that happened after this was all Christians, all baptized Christians. Um, you weren't allowed to stay after that. This was like an addendum. Okay, so this is hard for us to understand because today everything's open to everybody, but wasn't for a long, long time. Okay. Cranmer intended as well that at this point in the Eucharistic liturgy, most people would actually leave and go home. Does that make sense? Because they probably weren't going to stay for communion because most of them probably shouldn't have been receiving anyway. Okay, got it? Kramer's vision is a day when everyone will receive and that'll be normal, okay? But it hadn't happened at that point, and it didn't happen for a long time. Um, So what happens? You close the doors. um, Of course... In the Reformation, everybody's already baptized, so that, that hasn't been happening for a long time. Like, that hasn't been happening for 800 years. Um, but what's the first thing you do? You pray. And the prayers of the people are very formed out, and the reason they're formed is because they actually teach theological things in the midst of them. This has been understood for a long time. Why do you pray for those who do not believe? Because only God can do anything about them, right? Right? Uh, why do you pray for those who are sick and poor and all the rest? Because unless you get the, this level of presumption that says, "I'm supposed to do something about them," forget God. I'm the one who's supposed to bear the weight of guilt for the fact that there are poor people and hungry people and all the rest. What's the teaching here? Nope. We're gonna pray first. Like pray, pray, pray. We're gonna pray, and then we're gonna pray again, right? So all of these prayers have that have that idea. We pray for, um, and in the modern text of the prayers of the people, we pray for the church, we pray for the world, we pray for all the of people. Okay, got it? So all of this is supposed to be that. Now, let's say let's say a word about postures. Um, this is where postures become very clear. Like, up to this point, you've stood for the opening parts of liturgy, sat down for the readings, stood for the gospel, sat back down for the sermon, you've stood for the Nicene Creed. Okay, fine, we all get that. You've made the sign of the cross, maybe, if you want to. Um, the sign of the cross, by the way, is not mandatory. Anyone can do it. Uh, how do you know when to do it? Look around. If other people are doing it, you do it. Um, and, and you can do it as much as you want, or as little as you want. That's okay, too. Um, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, that's just, I'm sorry for that, but, and I could give you a guide, but I'd be wrong. Uh, and, and that's just, that's not really the spirit of it. It's just like, hey, um, The beginning of liturgy, sign of the cross, right? Gospel liturgy. Um, At the gospel readings, it's sign of the cross on your forehead, right? Sign of the cross on your lips, sign of the cross on the heart. Okay, got it? And then you listen, right? Because you recognize that the mind is how you perceive, lips are how you speak, and the heart's where it really starts to take root and really, really matter. Okay. So, having done the prayers of the people, then we move on to the confession of sin. Now certain people in the you know in the English church would stay for the would actually they would have left already because the prayers were rolled into the Eucharistic canon. They weren't prior to the confession. So just keep that in mind. The first thing that you would hear after the sermon was we're on page one hundred and twelve, All ye who truly and earnestly repent of your sins and seek to live in love and charity with your with thy neighbor, and intend to lead the new life following the commandments of God and walking henceforth in his holy ways, draw near with faith. And take this sacrament to thy comfort, meekly kneeling upon thy knees. Okay. So I'm giving you the old version, but what's being said here? Okay, you're all sitting in the pews. The priest comes out, says, draw near. Okay, where's near? Up in the chancel. Okay. So you pass under the cross in the rude screen up to the chancel, where the Eucharist is celebrated, with no one in the nave. Do you see what's going on here? See why I told you about architecture first? It's like, there may or may not be people who are, you know, like this is not just sort of like a, a giant choir. There are people who might not receive. There are people who might not come forward. That's okay. They're totally cool with that. Um, it is not understood until very last hundred years that Christians will receive communion every Sunday. Um, and a lot of that is based on scholarship of the ancient church and the way it was. It's like, we need to receive communion every Sunday because... That's just what Christians do, right? We understand that, Um, and I believe that. But I also think that some people should hold off, right? They should say, I'm not really in that place. All right, so the confession happens. Um, And the confession has a number of features that I want to point out to you, uh, but for lack of time, can't. Um, Note, double have mercy. (laughs) Okay. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Twice. Right. And I, I tend to strike myself at this point. Right. Just to kind of remind me like, this hurts. This is painful. Like, um, but the double have mercy is really important because it, 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 it shows you this is really deadly serious. Right. Um, in fact, Father Canary and I are the reason I'll just say this. We're the reason that there's a double have mercy because we said, you really got to have both because it's always been in the prayer books, and then it was dropped, and it was really detrimental to people. Because sometimes, you if it was just one, you wouldn't hear it, but because it's two, it it strikes. Um, so all that's there. Um, why are we? What's that? On page one hundred thirteen. Um, note you see this provoking of God's anger is involved in this, um, but why does God have mercy? Not because of our goodness. Not even because we're confessing, but because, but for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may evermore serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then there's the absolution, which is really key. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him. Right, This is Reformation doctrine right here. Who does God have mercy on? those to whom he's promised his mercy to right and having promised his mercy to them what do they do well they sincerely repent and they turn to him with true faith I mean that's (laughs) look that's Luther and Calvin and Cranmer and all of them because this is a kind of um, well this is a kind of poking at the Roman Catholics like you know you all think yeah this this is true doctrine here this is where it really hits the road all right, pardon and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, then we have the comfortable words. Four quotations from Scripture that deal with what do you you know what's what is God's response to sin. Um, I memorize these. I'm so happy to be able to say them, you know, and and have it every Sunday as a thing that happens. Um, because sometimes I've had people say to me like, I wasn't even thinking about my sinfulness at the confession, because I was thinking about, you know, my kid's sippy cup or whatever it was. Um, and that's okay. That's fine. Um, but see, it's just constantly catching you, right? The idea is you you might catch 20% of the liturgy. Fine. The 20% you catch is going to be solid. Does that make sense? Like, it's going to hit you between the eyes. So here it is. Comfortable words. Okay. Now we're on to the some corda. And here I'm just going to blow, right? Blow right through Starts with the Lord be with you. Why do we say the Lord be with you? Why does the priest say the Lord be with you? It's a blessing. It's like a mini blessing, the Lord be with you. And then you respond, and with your spirit, okay? Now, why not, and also with you? Because it's a blessing and the people respond, may you receive that blessing too, Father. Okay, that's what it is, that's what's going on there. Lift up your hearts. This is in Latin, "sursum corda." So, lift up your hearts. Right? And why are you to lift up your heart? Because it's with the heart that we enter into the mysteries of God, not our mind. It's with the heart. Um, This lifting of the heart, and and this is actually where we start to get heavenly. Right? This is where this is where heaven and earth collide in the liturgy. This is big. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God, right? What is the Eucharist? Well, it's an act of thanks. That's what the word means, okay? Um, Which, you know, go ahead. Oh, about the heart and mind dichotomy? Yeah. What's the What's the question? Yeah, um, so we're, we're very mind-forward people, okay? That's part of being uh, modern, is that we, we think a lot. Um, for ancient people, the heart is not just the seat of our emotions, right? It's not just sort of like our anti-rational self. That's not the idea. The idea is instead um, that it's in the heart where our will resides. So you know, here's the deal. Like, why do we do bad things? Because our heart's broken and deceitful, not because our mind doesn't think properly. Um, so I want to get get you that kind of way. That's that's where the heart kind of is not just kind of my emotions, or my loves. Okay. Although that is, um, I think that the bigger sense is, where's my will placed? Um, and this is this is lifting it up. Okay. I'm gonna move really fast. The Sanctus is, of course, taken from Scripture. It's 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 basically the words of heaven. It happens in Revelation, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. I mean, you know this. Um, the prayer, the Eucharist, this high prayer, is uh, it is a uh, prayer to the Father. Okay? So catch that. It's not a prayer to Jesus. It's a prayer to the Father. Um, the Eucharistic canon is always a prayer to the Father. Um, it is a prayer that is offered in the midst of the church, meaning uh, with angels and archangels, with the departed, with the living as well, so the church as a whole. Um, the church as a whole is always constituted in the Eucharistic liturgy, all of it. Um, the departed, the present, all of them. Okay, and then you've got this this wonderful Eucharistic prayer, which if you really read it deeply, and I encourage you to do that, um, this is full of good, good teaching, right? What's what's the perfect offering before the Father? Jesus on the cross, okay? Um, all of that's there. Then you have um, the Lord's Prayer, which is always a part of Eucharistic liturgies. You have to have the Lord's Prayer or it didn't happen, okay? Um, that, that goes straight back to the first century. Uh, the canon of, of Apollotus says you pray the Lord's Prayer in the middle of the liturgy, that's, that's what you do. That's what everybody does. Um, Then you have uh, the Prayer of Humble Access, which is Kramer's edition. Wonderful, right? I love the Prayer of Humble Access. It's good, very well written. Uh, It's it's, again, if you fall asleep, you might hear the Prayer of Humble Access. You you might be reminded of the gospel in the Prayer of Humble Access, of course. That's what it is. Um, And that takes us all the way straight up to the communion. Just to give you a little bit of like the the layout of, of liturgical postures, right? Why do we kneel for the for the for the Eucharistic canon? And I'm going to close with this. Why kneeling? We don't really kneel at any other time. One of my favorite Anglican divines writes on this because there was a great controversy about kneeling. It was like kneeling seems to be idolatrous, like you're worshiping something that you shouldn't be worshiping. And he said, "No, come on. Jesus receives the fate of the cross from his knees. Look, that's why we kneel at communion, right? Because we're receiving the fate that Jesus takes on for us in in this um, in in the Eucharist." Um, to 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 go to the Eucharist is to go to the cross. I'll just put it that way, right? And and all this kind of all this kind of like mixed mixed things about like well, certainly we wouldn't want to say that like the the Eucharist is re-crucifying Jesus. Well, nobody teaches that. Nobody's ever taught that. Okay, not seriously. Um, Roman Catholics don't believe that. Um, I'll have words with anyone who says they do because they don't. Um, what's what's the answer? Well, the answer is. Of course it takes us to the cross, because you can't have Jesus without the cross. If you go to Jesus, you go to the cross. That's how it is. Um, that's why Jesus is always depicted with the cross, if rightly. There's always a cross somewhere. There should be, um, because you can't abstract him from the cross. You ha- It has to be the cross. Um, so th- there's, my, there's my little rant at the end of it, is like, That's why we make the sign of the cross multiple times in the Eucharist, okay? That's why we do all these things, because we're just remembering that Christ crucified is the center of the church's life. Okay, thanks, everybody.